in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. We are nearing, it's hard to believe, but we're nearing the end of our study, Lord willing, in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount with four warnings. Four warnings meant to drive home the teaching of the whole sermon and meant to keep us on track. And this morning's warning has entirely to do with keeping ourselves focused on the Word of God, focused on the true words of God, and focused away from, turning away from what, we're, what are called here false prophets. Matthew chapter 5, chapter 7, verse 15 Uh, I'm going to read it, and then I'll pray. When I do pray, uh, I know sometimes uh, it's nice to sleep during these sermons, and I've, I've kept many of you awake. I, I was really sick this week, and so I'm afraid I may fall asleep sometime this morning, and so I'm going to ask that you pray that I would stay awake and have lots of energy over the course of this morning. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse, uh, verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear good fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and this word is very important. If we ignore this word, we will be ravaged by wolves in the years to come. And any good work that's been happening here at Emmanuel will be destroyed as Satan aggressively pushes false teaching on the church. Lord, we pray that you would not allow the sleepiness that's come from my sickness over the week or from our own sleepiness to keep us from being fully alert, and we thank you that we don't depend on human strength, but on the strength which you supply. So we pray, Lord God, that in our weakness, you would be strong this morning, teaching us your word in ways we will never forget, and that we will practice at the moment wolves come to tear us apart. Lord, we pray that you do all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, the early days of the movies were silent. The early days of motion pictures were literally uh, silent. The technology to sync a sound and film didn't exist, and so you had stars like Charlie Chaplin and Greta Garbo uh, laboring to communicate all that they would communicate, whether it's dramatically or romantically, with body language and body language alone, because there was no ability to get their words onto the screen. And individual uh, movie theaters would actually hire uh, piano players 
to play chase songs and uh, love songs. Uh, my, my, actually, my step-grandmother did this for a living. She would play along with the movies of the early part of the last century to communicate, well, you know, kind of like a Pastor Jeff sermon, like dun-dun-dun-dun, that, that, that kind of thing. So they would, they would uh, kind of use that to uh, communicate along it with these silent films. So uh, it would make the acting of Buster Keaton and Lillian Gish and others dramatic, even though there were no words. But of course, uh, the silent movie died. Uh, the minute you could get voice onto the screen, because there is an undebatable reality that nothing communicates a human emotion, a human stories, a truth uh, better than the human voice. And so since the 19, I think 1927 is the first uh, voiced movie, but since then, uh, voice has been here to stay, and now we have soundtrack and voice walking hand in hand. Well, the transition from silent motion picture to motion pictures with sound can illustrate uh, something that's very important for us to understand in the text we're looking at this morning. The uh, transition from silent motion pictures to motion pictures with sound helps us remember the, different, the two different ways God speaks. You see, God speaks without words. In creation, God is speaking. The heavens declare the glory of God. He speaks in all that he makes, whether it's winds or rain or sun or, or bright skies. It's all communicating something of his glory, something of his wonder. Uh, the way Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 1 is his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. God speaks through his creation. But even though it's effective communication, even though you can get a sense of his glory and his grandeur, there's a lot you can't say without words. There's a lot that can't be communicated without actually articulating with words that are clear and understandable. To speak with greater clarity, you have to have the human voice. Language can say almost anything, and God has been pleased throughout the history of the world not just to communicate something of his grandeur, but to communicate everything he wants to say to men and women through his word. And that's why if you flip through your Bible, you'll find that a lot of the books are named after people. Why is it that we look through our Bible and we find names like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Micah? It's because these are prophets. These are people who spoke God's word. They spoke what God wanted all people to know. God has given us a word where he's not been silent, but where he's actually interested in speaking all the details. Can you imagine if you had a spouse or a parent who always said, you know, they would hug you, they would maybe give you the cold shoulder if they were mad, but they would never actually tell you what they're thinking. 
You'd, you'd be in a permanent state of confusion. You'd never get beyond what Bethany mentioned. The sense of like, what is God doing in my life? You'd never know, because you'd never have any revelation that had that kind of clarity that expressed to you exactly what God was thinking and feeling. But the fact that we have book after book after book after book after book written by God's prophets is because God wants his people to know exactly what he's thinking about everything. And so um, in the Old Testament, and this is all background to what we're going to look at this morning in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, in the Old Testament you have prophets who spoke God's word. But that ministry of prophets who speak God's word continues into the New Testament. In the New Testament time, there continued to be, after Jesus had come, prophets who spoke God's word. Let me give you a few examples of this in the book of Ephesians. Uh, if you're not familiar with what I'm speaking about, just give you a little overview from the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 4, it says that Jesus, when he ascended to the right hand of the Father, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. There are five different categories of people who brought truth to God's people, and one of them are prophets. And prophets, specifically, had a role in laying down the foundation of our faith. That is, what we believe and what we even preach from the Bible came to us through prophets, even who came after the time of Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Listen to this. The household of God, that's the church, Paul says, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Okay, so what are we saying? Nothing very complicated yet. God speaks. He speaks through creation. God speaks with words through the prophets in the Old Testament that pointed forward to Jesus. And then he speaks with words in the New Testament by prophets who unpacked who Jesus is and all that he has done. Let me give you a little illustration of what it would have looked like for one of these prophets to speak in the uh, New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 3, here's what the Apostle Paul says about his ministry and the ministry of these prophets. He says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Now, the mystery of Christ is just a New Testament way of saying all that's been revealed about Jesus from the Old Testament, all that's been fulfilled by Jesus from the Old Testament. He says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. One simple point I'm trying to make. God speaks. He speaks in creation. It'll give you a sense of how glorious he is, how grand he is. You can't look at creation and not know there's a God that made all this. But he speaks more precisely in his word through the prophets. All through the Old Testament, the prophets spoke. And then in the New Testament, they came to God's people 
unpacking to them what Jesus Christ had done for us and for our salvation. There were prophets that gave uh, more occasional words, not, not eternal words we needed all the time, but more occasional words like Agabus would tell the church there was going to be a famine or that uh, Paul was going to be arrested. But by and large, the prophets of the, of the New Testament time period were explaining what Jesus had come to do on the cross and what the implications were for all of God's people. Now, I'm telling you all this because it, only in that context do Jesus' words make sense. What Jesus is telling us here in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, is that not all the prophets you'll ever hear from will speak the truth. Not all those who ever claim to speak for God will speak for God. And, listen to this, the ordinary Christian without Jesus' protection will not keep following the truth. The ordinary Christian, apart from Jesus' words of caution, will not continue in the word that will save them. The way we will stay on the words that will save us is if we're aware of the danger of false prophets. If we're aware that there are those who would speak to us in the name of God who intend to lead us down the path of the devil. We're not in a neutral world. We're not in a world where you can just sort of coast and be fine and hear the gospel once and never get deranged, never get derailed, never get taken down a bad path. Jesus knew that just like God sent true prophets, the devil would send false prophets, and it's vital that God's people know how to tell the difference so that they can stay glued to the word of God which saves us forever. And so Jesus says, Beware of false prophets. Do you see that? He says it right at the beginning of our passage. He says, beware of the false prophets. Now, being aware that there's false prophets out there is something that God's people have always had to do. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, there were false prophets. Even in the days of Jeremiah and Isaiah and Moses, there weren't just true prophets, there were false prophets as well. And uh, when you look in the Old Testament, you find that there, God also cared for his people by making sure they knew how to tell the difference between who was true and who was false. Let me read you a few examples of this from the book of Deuteronomy. The prophet Moses in the book of Deuteronomy lays down principles that would keep his people from being deceived and falling into a false prophet's trap. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 13. I'm, yeah, Deuteronomy chapter 13. Listen to these words. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you, and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or of that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. There has never been a time in the history of the world where only God's people did miracles. 
Pharaohs, magicians did miracles. Uh, the, those who served alongside Daniel in the days of Daniel did miracles. And there can be a tendency to think, well, if someone does a miracle, they must be from God. Not so at all. Here, Moses says, hey, there may be people who come along with dreams. They may have a sign. They have a wonder. But even if they have a sign or a wonder, if they tell you, let's go after other gods, your spidey senses go off. All of a sudden, you realize this is not the way to go. It doesn't matter if it's miraculous, if it calls you away from God. This is sort of like um, grade one of how to detect a false prophet. If a false prophet says, let's not follow God, then the people of God are to have the reasoning skills sufficient to say, not going with that guy. I don't care if he raises half of Europe from the dead. We do not follow those who would lead us away from the living God. But that's not the only test we get in the Old Testament. There's more than that. And the number of ways we're told to test false prophets should clue us into something. Listen to me. The reason there's so many tests for how to test a false prophet is because they're actually quite deceptive. And if we come at life, Emmanuel, a lot of us have a theological education. This is a pretty well-grounded church. We should be good. We're always going to stay on the true path. The devil's going to rip us to shreds. If you think you're above all this, better educated than all of this, you are prime real estate for the devil's destruction. Another way in which uh, Moses prepared people in the Old Testament to uh, see through a false prophet comes in Deuteronomy 18.21. Deuteronomy 18.21. Moses anticipates a question. How may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? Hey, Moses, how do we know when we're getting a fake word? Moses says, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is the word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. In other words, if a prophet says there's going to be a famine in Jerusalem and there's no famine, the prophet hasn't spoken from God. If the prophet makes a prediction and the prediction doesn't come true, the prophet hasn't spoken from God. Now, the, the presumption there is quite interesting. The presumption there is the only way you can speak for God and know the future is if you know the God who actually can control the present and the future. That's why prophets can say what the future is, because only God knows the future. And I was thinking about this, uh, I want to speak to the kids for a second. A lot of times kids growing up in Christian homes will say, how do I know that what mom and dad believe is really the truth? I mean, I've got friends who've got Muslim parents and they believe Muslim things, and I've got friends who've got Buddhist parents and they believe Buddhist things, and I've got Christian parents, and I guess I believe Christian things. But how do I know that what I believe isn't just what my parents believe, but it's actually true? And the way you can know that what you believe, if you believe the scriptures, is not just your parents' faith, is because all the promises you find in the Bible actually came 
true later on. That is, they were predicted and then they came to pass. So the prophet Micah will say, there will be a king who was born in Bethlehem. And he said it hundreds of years before the king who would be born in Bethlehem was ever born. And yet Jesus was born where? Bethlehem. Not because your parents said so, but because God is the God who can make promises in history and then work them out in history. And all of his words are like that. They're that solid, that stable, that he can make the most detailed and precise predictions and then bring them to pass. And he doesn't just do this to show off. He does it so you'll believe him when he tells you that he died to save sinners. And you can trust him to save you from your sins, no matter how old you are. If you are old enough to understand right and wrong and old enough to know that you have done wrong, you are old enough to know that Jesus Christ died to save those who have done wrong. He lived a life of only doing what's right so that he could save those who've only done what is wrong. And he predicted every, every, he, everything he promised and predicted came to pass and every salvation promise he makes will also come to pass as well. If you believe him to forgive you, he will forgive you. So prophets speak from God. They speak with a precision that's beyond creation. They speak with a clarity that's beyond just noticing God's revelation in the world. And they speak in ways that uh, can be trusted and can be tested. Anybody who says, I speak for God, just trust me, is immediately off the table. Those who can be trusted as God's spokesman are those who call us to follow God, and they would never do so many miracles and then tell us to go away from God. And they're those who, when they speak and make a promise about what will come to pass, it comes to pass. Now, we're just closing in on the passage we're in. We're warming up rather slowly to Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. And I'm warming up rather slowly because Jesus, to my mind, is speaking to us about the most deceptive kinds of false prophets. There are false prophets who will never come right out and say, stop following the Lord. There are false prophets who know they need to slip under the radar and not be walking around telling people that they can make predictions about the future when they know they can't. There are false prophets who can only be discerned if you watch their life over long periods of time. And Jesus is here warning us about those false prophets. Notice, though, the assumption. We've been alluding to it, now let's make it explicit. The assumption here is that false prophets are not easy to spot. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Now, any guy who showed up at church on a Sunday morning wearing a devil outfit and saying Jesus is not Lord would get laughed out of this congregation in a second. It would be immediately apparent that this was not someone we ought to follow. 
And since that's that easy to discern, the average demonic false prophet doesn't use that tactic. Rather, they come in sheep's clothing. And that term sheep's clothing could be taken one of two ways, both very deceptive. One, it could just mean they come dressed like sheep. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians, the devil dresses as an angel of light. The reality is that the, the average false teacher who is absolutely demonic and an utter enemy of the people of God is extremely good at fitting in to the people of God, knowing how to use Bible language, knowing how to pray at just the right times, knowing how to show care for God's people, maybe even care in ways that a true spokesman for God is neglecting. There's all kinds of ways for a false prophet to weasel their way into the people of God by looking like sheep. And the other way of taking this term, a sheep's clothing, is to refer, and John MacArthur takes it this way, to the, to the woolen garment that a, a shepherd would wear. Actually, shepherds would wear wool off of their sheep. And, and so, of course, the idea here would be that these false prophets come to you looking like shepherds, looking like people who care for you, who love you, who have your best interests at heart, who want to feed you the Bible. False prophets, one of the dangers of having such egregious false prophets on TV all the time, you know, guys with uh, suits so shiny they blind you if you look at them too long. If you, one, of the, one of the problems with that whole thing is we think all false prophets are that easy to spot. Not all false prophets are driving Lamborghinis in private jets and clearly amassing greed to themselves. That's easy stuff. Many false prophets are actually coming in among the sheep, in sheep's clothing, ready to deceive God's lambs, ready to deceive you. If you think you're above this, you're your prime candidate. If I think that this could never happen to me, I'm fooling myself. And so here, uh, Jesus tells us, beware these false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. I want to think with you a little bit more about this. What would a false prophet sound like in the New Testament? As we look at some of the instances where false prophets came into the church in the New Testament, what did they sound like? Because it's all counterintuitive. It's all not what you expect. False prophets, beloved, generally use lots of Bible. False prophets use lots of Bible. We think, oh, that guy didn't preach the Bible at all. I could spot him from a mile away. Yeah, he's not the guy you need to worry the most about. He's easy to spot. The guy who's going to destroy your soul is the person who uses lots of Bible. Maybe you're familiar with the book of Galatians. In the book of Galatians, these Christians who were established in justification by faith alone, that Jesus Christ justifies sinners by giving them his own righteousness so they can stand before God. Christians knew that, believed that. But they began to leave justification by faith. The gospel we love, that we say amen to. Every time I preach for five minutes or so on justification by faith, as soon as I give you a moment of silence, I'm going to hear amen. 
Christians like that. They started getting sucked away. Why? Paul says in Galatians 4, 10 through 11, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I have labored over you in vain. What does he mean, days and months and seasons and years? The false teachers had been teaching them to observe all the details of the Jewish calendar. Oh, it seems so biblical. Oh man, there I was, just a Gentile, saved by grace. And then these guys came along, they introduced me to the roots of my Jewish faith. It was so awesome. I was sick of my shallow Gentile culture. I loved knowing that I was part of a people with deep historical roots. I started, uh, getting, I started celebrating the seasons, the months, the years. I was giving myself every Passover and every Pentecost. There wasn't a celebration I missed. I had my children circumcised. All because and they kept showing it to me from the Bible. There were these great long Bible studies where we'd look at God's word and, you know, we didn't even have the New Testament so we were finally digging into that Old Testament word being lied to. Because the mark of a false prophet is not that they abandon the Bible but that they misuse it. That they take a portion of it and lift it up over Jesus rather than seeing every part of the Bible as pointing to Jesus. So one of the marks of a false prophet is lots of Bible. Another mark of a false prophet is they deal severely with sin. Kind of. You know, you think that a false prophet's always going to come along and get lax. Going to help everybody be more carnal. Going to sort of take the weight off. But that's not always the way it goes. Sometimes false prophets come and they ramp up, kind of, our fight against sin. You know, the real Bible says we're to gouge out our eyes and cut off our hands to fight sin. The real gospel says we're to pick up our cross and die to ourselves every day. So Christians know we're supposed to really fight sin. But then someone comes along and they're like, man, you can fight it harder if you just eliminate certain things from your life. Colossians 2.20, the false prophets were teaching, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Uh, first, first Timothy chapter 5, people were teaching, hey, marriage causes a lot of problems. Get rid of marriage. They were, uh, gluttony can cause a lot of problems. You should abstain from certain foods. And there's a sense in which the radical Christian who really wants to go hard for Jesus, they set the hook right in there. And they add a little to the Bible that's going to help you fight sin more. You can escape being one of those normies who just fight sin in normal kinds of ways and you can get really radical and not handle and not taste anything. But all of that is still deception. Listen to Paul expose it in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Notice this. You know, people say, where is demonic warfare happening today? Wherever there's false prophets, where there's false teaching. People will devote themselves to the doctrine of demons 
through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. If anyone comes along to you and says, do you know about the biblical diet? If you just eliminate certain foods, it's gonna help you. You just say, there is no, your biblical diet is from the devil. Give it to me. I want to thank God for it. Where is my whatever meat I can imagine Speedway sub? I want it now. It's for, it's, I'm going to thank Jesus for it. False prophets will often come with lots of Bible. False prophets will often come with lots of severity and aestheticism. We should also recognize the part of the reason false prophets can deceive sheep like you and me, not like that other church, not like that, that church that's soft on doctrine. No, like you and me. Part of the reason they can deceive people like you and I is because there's an awfully big part of each of our flesh that wants to be deceived. You know, it's hard to stay humble at just the foot of the cross. It's hard to go your whole life and find your whole identity just at the foot of the cross. I mean, can't I at least boast that, you know, my kids are kind of awesome or something? It's hard to live your whole life, even after you've lived consistently and faithfully for decades, saying, there is nothing good about me except Jesus. Pride screams at that reality. Pride kicks and, and fights against that reality that all I am is from Jesus plus nothing. And while your pride's screaming and kicking at that reality that all we ever are is a sinner with nothing to boast about except Christ's grace, while your pride's screaming at that, a false prophet will come along and go, you know, you could get more in touch with your Jewish heritage, add a little to that Jesus alone stuff. That's such a shallow piety. You've embraced Jesus alone. False prophet could come and say, you know, if you would just get more radical, do not eat, do not handle, do not touch, you'd quit just being like all these normal Christians fighting along their way through the world with wisdom. And you'd be a little step above all that. You could grab a hold of something like the way you eat or the way you school. And just, just, it just has to be like a, an eighth of a spiritual inch, spiritual inch above the next guy. That's enough to soothe our pride and make me think I'm just a little, little something special. False prophets are aiming to pull something out of us we want. For someone to feed our pride and not just leave us humble till the day we get to heaven and for eternity. Because the only reason we're going to heaven or we'll be in heaven is Jesus and Jesus alone. That's how false prophets can deceive. 
which means if you're sitting there in life right now and you're thinking, you know, I'm pretty bored with the gospel. I'm not really thrilled with Jesus Christ dying for all my sins. But you know what? It's kind of amazing. I haven't fallen into any major sins. I seem to be doing pretty good. Maybe, maybe I'm going to be okay. You are currently easy pickings. You are, you are prime real estate for false teaching right now. The safest people in the world to be protected from false teaching are those who know the warnings of Scripture and those who are fully embracing the fact that they have nothing. They're not a cut above anyone else. And all they need for full acceptance with God is abundantly theirs in Jesus Christ through his death on the cross and his resurrection alone. Those people are hard to drag off target. Notice that Jesus says that although they will look like sheep who want to help us, they'll look like shepherds that want to lead us and guide us, they are wolves that will eat us alive. False teachers are, are, are people who for a season in your life were your friend. False teachers, the ones we really need to worry about, are people who for a season we walked alongside of intimately. But while we thought we were heading in the same direction, we were actually just crossing paths going different directions. And their goal is to ravenously destroy the people of God, to eat them alive. And what does that mean? That's kind of a metaphor that they would be like ravenous wolves. What does it mean that they want to eat us alive? What does it look like when you get eaten alive by a false prophet? What does that look like in an individual life or in the life of a congregation? Well, first of all, it means that you would begin to believe truths that will not save your soul. That's why 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 says, There will be false teachers among you who secretly bring in destructive heresies. That is, false teachers will get you off of the Trinity. They'll get you off of justification by faith. They'll get you off of what must be believed to be saved. You think, well, at least I'm still sincere. Sincerity doesn't take people to heaven, beloved. Paul says in Romans chapter 10 about the Jews of his day, I bear them witness they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They aren't saved. They have a zeal for God, but it's not according to truth. And if you don't know the truth, you will not be saved. And so one of the ways false prophets will deceive us is they'll get us Oh, does that doctrine mean matter that much? Do I really have to be so particular about exactly how a man is saved, who God is? And they will move you away from those truths. Another way false prophets will destroy us is they're getting us judging one another. False prophets love to introduce all that sort of new things you must do so that you can hate the people who don't do that. Do it. 
Instead of, again, just a bunch of normal Christians fighting their way to heaven together with all of our little idiosyncrasies, now pride can enjoy judging other Christians who don't fight sin exactly like you do. False prophets love that. They love to destroy the people of God that way. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with a regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. The false prophets were saying, you got to eat this, you got to celebrate these holy days, this is the way we all do it, and we judge all the people who don't do it that way. Paul says, don't let them judge you like that. Reject that. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are the shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Stay with Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Now, I believe that to this very day, there are uh, prophecies God can give his people to really encourage them, and we're to seek that. But here we're also told there's something called being puffed up with reason by visions in your sensuous mind. You just love to get up in your head and think God is giving you a special vision that everyone else who hasn't got it isn't really all that with God. This is the way prophets will deceive us, destroy us. It's the way you take you down. Another way prophets destroy, false prophets destroy, is they are eager to sleep with the saints. It's something very common in the scriptures. You'll see it regularly. You see it in Second Peter. It says they're hungry for adultery. They have adulterous eyes. It's, it's not uncommon to see behind a false prophet a, a trail of broken lives where the false teacher has slept with those they've manipulated spiritually. It's also not uncommon to see them trying to suck money like a vacuum cleaner out of the pockets of the people of God. We're told they're greedy for gain. So, a couple more things. You could go on about this all day. First ch Peter chapter one. What do false prophets do? They get us focused on minor issues rather than focused on major issues. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, certain persons by swerving from a sincere faith have wandered into vain discussion. You see, you see what I'm getting at? None, none of it comes like, hey, let's go be Buddhists. Hey, let's go be Muslims. Hey, let's go be Mormons. None of it comes like that. It all comes with, have you noticed in the scriptures? And all of a sudden you're having discussions that don't matter all day about the Bible. Hey, have you noticed the rich Jewish heritage of all the things we're supposed to do from the Old Testament? Let's focus on those. And all of a sudden you're distracted from Jesus Christ. Hey, let's judge the people who aren't abstaining from all this new set of rules and regulations that Mr. False Prophet has brought into things. And all of a sudden you're judging those who don't do it just like you do in matters the Bible never even spoke of. And all of a sudden, a people who were aiming to be shepherded are being devoured. Their self-righteousness is being inflamed. Their pride is being inflamed. Their sexual morality is usually being compromised. And their money is going somewhere it never should.
That's how they destroy the people of God. That's how they eat the people of God alive. So how do you spot them? How do you spot them? They're very deceptive. They're not easy to spot. If you're walking around thinking, I can spot a guy like that, no problem. You're a fool. I'm a fool. If we think we can just immediately spot every false teacher, there are some you can spot right away, but there's many that are very difficult to spot, even up close. And Jesus' words are, you can spot them because their lives will eventually give them away. Their lives will eventually give them away. And I'm going to read you the passage one more time, but the basic logic here is that pigs can't have kittens, and dogs don't give birth to giraffes. In other words, beings always produce according to their kind. You can't produce anything other than what you are. Whenever someone in Emmanuel gets pregnant and has a child, we might ask, is it a boy or a girl? But that's all we ask, because we're not worried if it's a cat or a dog. Because people create people. And that's just Jesus' logic here, is that every plant and every tree can only produce according to its kind. And so he says here, uh, you will recognize them by their fruits. And fruit is a New Testament way of speaking about someone's lifestyle, about what comes off of their life. The, the life we have produces certain kinds of fruits. Like all of our lives are trees, and they will produce certain kinds of fruits. And here Jesus says, you'll know them by their fruits. And then he tells them, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? No, only thorns come off of thorn bushes. Or figs from thistles? No, thistles can't produce figs. Only fig trees produce figs. And then he changes the illustration a little bit to another one that's very easy for us to understand. It's simply that health begets health and disease begets disease. And so he says to us, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. That is a real Christian is going to, not perfectly, but truly, Live a good life. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In other words, the destiny of all of these false teachers is the fire of God. Because God is not going to tolerate false teaching infinitely. Anyway, the logic here is clear. The logic is that they will give themselves away. Why? Aren't they trying to hide? Yeah, but they can't help give themselves away. Because when you're not good from the heart, you can't only keep up appearances so long. Their rotten core and their rotten nature will eventually produce a rotten life, and the people of God should not at that moment say, yeah, but he's a really good teacher. Oh boy, does that ever happen? A lot. Preacher gets up, confesses to some heinous wickedness. Congregation gives him a big round of applause and he preaches again next Sunday. And the congregation will be destroyed. Ravaged. Destroyed. Instead of saying, no, that's bad fruit. And since there's a bad life, 
the teaching is not to be received. It's to be silenced. It's to be shut down. Oh, but he's been here for years. Oh, his family has given their life for the church. I mean, they, they've poured themselves into the church. I mean, what, numbers would decrease rapidly if this person left. I mean, our budget would be destroyed if that guy turned out to be a mess. We can't remove him. We can put some systems of accountability around him. We've got to keep him preaching. He's too big to fail. And those lines that all make so much sense are the death wish of thousands of congregations who are heading to hell. These men have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. They are beasts says Jude and 2 Peter. They are not good men with a few errors. They are men who want to destroy God's sheep and it may not become immediately evident, but it will become ultimately evident. Beloved, the sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. And when they appear, the church must do all in their power to remove that kind of wickedness. Well, let me give us three quick exhortations in light of this truth. And I'll begin with an exhortation to myself and to my fellow elders. Brothers, listen to the word from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. If your starting point is, that could never be me, you need to turn that and say, that will inevitably be me unless I heed God's word to keep a close watch on myself, my lifestyle, and my teaching. I'm to persist in this so that I save both myself and my hearers. If I don't persist in this, the implication is I will be lost, and worse, so will my hearers. Brothers, we're to watch ourselves so that the good tree of our lives avoids any disease that would destroy the good fruit. Brothers, are there sexual temptations you're flirting with that if left unchecked will destroy you? If you touch alcohol, are you doing it in such a way that, joy, that it gives joy to the heart of a man like the Psalms promises? Or is it leading to the drunkenness that leads to debauchery? Are you content with what you have? Or is the church to become a place where you are using the people of God for their money? A loose thread left unchecked can unravel an entire article of clothing. And loose sin unrepented of can ruin a life, a family, and a ministry. 
Let's press on and save both ourselves and our hearers. Second exhortation, not to each individual elder, but to the elders as a whole. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, listen to this. Pay careful attention to yourselves. This is Paul speaking to the elders from Ephesus at Miletus. And what does he say? He doesn't say, watch out for Benny Hinn. Watch out for, for Joel Osteen. I realize that's anachronistic, but you get the point. He's saying, hey, watch out for yourselves. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overshires to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. As soon as you as a pastor or me as a pastor feel an impulse to get people following us rather than Jesus, it's straight from the pit of hell. It's from the devil. And we're charged here to watch over ourselves. I remember years ago sitting in a meeting of pastors when it was announced uh, that Darren Patrick, pastor in St. Louis, had disqualified himself from ministry. And he'd done that by having an inappropriate relationship with someone in the church. And I remember sitting with this group of pastors and people were thinking about this and what's going on there. And one of the senior pastors, seasoned and older pastors in the room said, oh, my question's not really for Darren Patrick. It's for the elders who tolerated it. What was happening there? There was an abandonment of Acts 20, 28, pay careful attention to yourselves. As soon as we can't rebuke one another, we have no ability to protect the flock. Now there's things the flock can do, praise God, but here's a biblical admonition, for the elders to watch themselves. Let's watch out that the Driscolls and the Zachariases do not emerge from our own midst. Finally, here's my last exhortation. If false prophets ever infiltrate the leadership of Emmanuel, don't lose faith in Jesus. He's the one who promised it could happen. You, know, you hear people like, oh, I saw some leadership fell and now I'm not even sure I'm a Christian anymore. I saw uh, so many corrupt leaders and now I'm deconstructing my faith. What? If what Jesus says will happen, happens, we believe him less? He gives us these words so that if men arise who fulfill these words, we won't lose faith in him. Beloved, I want to stay faithful till the day I die. But if myself or any other leader should fail to be faithful, Jesus is faithful. Jesus is the one who predicted that no man could be fully trusted except him. And so if any man falls, look immediately to the one who will never fall.
And if I fall or any other pastor falls, we begin to show a wicked life of compromise. Do not give us a big severance package and a non-disclosure agreement. But publicly rebuke any pastor who falls because that's the way you keep the faith of all the saints is you show them God's truth wins here. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19 through 20. Two, as for those who persist in sin, speaking of elders here, as for those who persist in sin, it doesn't say as for the elder messed up one time, had a bad day, we're all human, let's not have heresy charges for imperfect elders. But as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so the rest may stand in fear. Not losing their faith, but standing firm in fear. God can even work that horrible situation out for the good of his people. If the church would but listen to him. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so they may, the rest may stand in fear in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of all the elect angels. I charge you, keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. No exception for the most famous guy. No exception for anyone. Everybody comes under God's word. Why? So that the true shepherd's voice can always be heard in the church so that the true words of the prophets can ever, always be heard. And so that the word that promises that all sinners who trust in Jesus can be saved by his death, resurrection on the cross, so that, that can be heard from every pulpit in the world forever. That's why we beware of false prophets. It's so we can listen forever to God's true prophets. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your wisdom. We pray, Lord God, for myself and for all of our pastors, for all who would set themselves up to proclaim your word in any context, that they would be good trees, full of good fruit. We pray for ourselves as a people that we would not be deceived by any false prophets, any false teachers, but we would stay with you, we would watch for your truth, and we would praise you every time you give us faithful men to proclaim to us the word of God. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.